Hello and welcome to part 15 of our Understanding Class series. Today is Monday the 5th of September 2022 and I'm your host Tom O'Brien. We continue our reading of Chapter 4, Class Exploitation and Economic Rents, Reflections on Sorensen's Towards a Sounder Base for Class Analysis. We give Neoclassical Economics both barrels. This week I have the new patron Saint Mollod and the returning patron Redneck Black Flag to thank. If you'd like to help support the show, please head on over to the Patreon where you get access to all those patron-only episodes and the Discord server. Sorry for the recent slowdown releases over the last couple of weeks, between holidays and a number of interviews that haven't quite come together yet as planned, we're down a number of episodes. But there's much stuff in the works. Also, Donald and myself have been really busy over the last week or two submitting our book proposal to a number of publishers. We'll be putting up a detailed chapter-by-chapter description of our book on the website in the next couple of days. So if you'd like to get more info on our progress or donate to help our work, head on over to the Classes Society in Motion.com. And remember, the link to the slides are in the show notes. Okay, to the discussion. He got rid of the concept of uh, labor value. And, right. and, it's, and it's complicated. It's complicated, right? conceptualizes exploitation as being something that is derived from rent. He's still talking about exploitation, but in a completely different framework. It's because ne- neoclassicals, when they did away with labor theory of value, they considered the category of exploitation completely done with who gives a shit. And then they're like, eh, you know what, actually, it'd be funny just to fuck up these uh, Marxists, right? We'll, we'll use exploitation in, an, in a new way. We'll take this word and repurpose it so that, you know, l- low skill workers getting solidarity wages from industrial unionism, you know, well, they're exploiters now. Like, <laughs> Yeah, so I was, I was imprecise there. Thanks for that, Kyle. So like there is all these, a list of all these kind of wacky, implications by doing what he did by making that turn one of them is like that the low paid people that are in any union are exploitating the unemployed lots of these things you know where basically union workers are exploiting like the unemployed you know lots of where a strong welfare state also increases exploitation welfare recipients are an exploiting class you know there's just so many bizarre things that come out of it, out of this now right then is going to come at this not from trying to explain things via or everything via rents but he's going to come up with an alternative definition of exploitation which we're going to do now does anybody have anything to say that i've missed out in that round uh, just just the most important counterintuitive he comes up with which is that as inequality increases in the neoliberal era exploitation decreases and therefore maybe exploitation is actually good for people it's like the the third level like mind bender bullshit ideology turn is exploitation is based on rent as inequality increases exploitation goes down therefore exploitation is actually good Right. And can, can someone explain this to me? Because I tried <laughs> to wrap my head around sure. it. And 
like even assuming the liberal bullshit, I'm just like, how? Because like okay, because um, arguably like yeah. the solidarity wage is like a good thing, even even if you consider it exploitative. If, I don't know if you have like left wing political. Oh, uh, okay, duh. Then, yeah, yeah, yeah. then allowing the classless society where everyone gets the proper amount for their rent in the Sorensen definition is actually like a more miserable and I'm, like it's more it's like a more miserable world and it's like more harmful. And so exploitation as facilitated by the state, actually, that prevents a classless society, you know, that actually, that's, that's more humane and good. You can get a real sort of like Krugman okay. politics out of this shit. It's actually better for the skilled worker if I'm like working in my, it's better for the nurse when I'm working in, my, in the hospital as a scheduler, if I get shit wages because I'm not part of their union, otherwise I'd be exploiting them. If you're right. making anything over what you would get under perfect competition, then you are an exploiter because you are collecting a rent in the neoclassical framework. And so, yeah, if you if you are making anything other than just what the going market rate would be, assuming, you know, neoclassical perfect competition exists in the background as a possibility, you are an exploiter. So yeah, if you're not if you're not in, in absolute poverty, yeah, uh, exploiter. Holy so fuck! We, I think I like being an exploiter now. <laughs> well, you know, you're just in this this privileged position as uh, you know, getting these rents on for assets you don't have. I mean, that's right. Because we all this know is the real class elite. We all know there's perfect information and perfect competition in markets in the real world. It's just you know this, this stuff just fucking makes me want to scream. Let's 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 head into Wright's alternative definition of exploitation. Who wants to take this one? Uh, Vicky, do you want to try this one? Uh, sure. So we have the alternate definition as put forward by Wright. Uh, number one is the inverse interdependent welfare principle, which basically means that the material welfare of the exploiters causally depends on the reduction of material welfare of the exploited. Number two, the exclusion principle. Uh, this inverse interdependence of welfares of exploiters and exploited depends upon the exclusion of the exploited from access to certain productive resources. And number three, the appropriation principle. Exclusion generates material advantage to exploiters because it enables them to appropriate the labor effect of the exploited. So, on number one, basically, the material welfare of the exploiter is causally dependent on the reduction of material. It's basically, number one, basically, what he's saying is that in order to be an exploiter, you have to be essentially taking away something materially from somebody else, right? Yeah, like a zero-sum kind of a thing. Right. Yeah. yeah. That's exactly right. And then we have like the exclusion principle, which like some people like so the the proletariat say are excluded from their resources, access to certain productive resources. And then the final one is the appropriation principle. So exclusion generates material advantage to exploiters because this enables them to appropriate the effort of the exploited. So this is like the workers in the proletariat don't have access to the productive resources. So when they work for the capitalists, the capitalist is able to appropriate some of their labor due to their lack of access. Okay. Right. Well, well the first one talks about like the, the game. The second one is sort of the determinant of the rules of the game. Right. 
I suppose I do have a nice pithy thing about this and that I'll, I'll defend right on these terms and that um, when John Romer did the, you know, analytical Marxist, like economic thing, at, at first he had the same reaction to exploitation. Ah, fuck it. This isn't a meaningful category. But then he tries to, he tries to use it again and he re- redefines it, not in, not in as crude and awful a way as Sorensen. But what he does is that he recreates part of neoclassical economics in that, like that kind of exploitation, capitalist exploitation, even though there is exploitation going on, it's not zero sum in the same way. And what I love about Eric Olin Wright's sociological exploitation is that it restores the zero sum property of Marxian economics. You know, there's that famous passage in Capital when... Marx is talking about, oh, look how fair exchange looks. But what happens when we leave the realm of private property and Bentham and all this in exchange? What happens when we go into production? We see the zero-sum heart of capital. Wright's version of exploitation restores the zero-sum gain in class politics. Right. So uh, this is Wright's alternative definition of exploitation. So Wright does not think that rents provide a full account of the explanatory mechanisms of exploitation. My God. Uh, do you know what really has annoyed me about like rereading this chapter was like the, the way that like you can say, okay, well, let's not deal with like actual existing reality when we're trying to understand reality. And let's just describe what the relationship is in production of an owning class and an exploited class. And let's just say, oh, it's a rent as if the the workers are renting the means of production. Like it's incredibly, incredibly annoying to, to call this. What, you're not a big fan of perfectly spherical, frictionless economies in a vacuum? Uh, I, uh, well, when you put it like that. Really. <laughs> <laughs> it's not so nice, but, but it's, yeah. It's, well lubricated economy. It's a common trait to neoclassicals to do that and treat like labor and capital as just different types of assets or whatever. And you know how much I love nice, rationalistic, pure form ball stuff. But, you know, it's an abuse of that stuff to try to apply it outside of where it where it, where, it, where it makes sense. And like, it's not just common, it's, it's necessary. It's right. necessary yeah. Um, yeah. the neoclassical it, framework. It's taking a, a, a correct thing that exists, like a rent, okay, or, a, or interest, mm-hmm. and it applies it to a different type of relation. You know, knowingly does. That's, you know, I just find that that it 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 just descends into just complete non-science you know so it just drives me mental reading it okay let's go on i'm gonna stop giving out here (laughs) okay second point he thinks that capitalism generates antagonistic class interests even in the imaginary conditions of perfect competition okay that's a good point if the first two of these principles are present, so that's the inverse interdependent welfare principle, so your zero sum and your exclusion principle, where you basically exclude people from the means production, but not the third, which is the appropriation principle. So you're not getting, you don't have this continuous relationship whereby you're appropriating their surplus labor, say, from a Marx point of view. What might be termed non-exploitative economic oppression may exist, but not exploitation. The crucial difference is that non-exploitation economic oppression, the advantage social category does not itself need the excluded category. So this is an example in the book they give us of the Native Americans, you know, excluded but not exploited. And I think this is 
really, really, really important thing. Like you can see in the history of the different colonies, different things happening. You know, you see in America where there was a large amount of immigration there from Western Europe, Russia and places that they did not need the the, the, the Native Americans and they, they, they basically there was a genocide. You see the same thing happens in uh, I think in in Australia, New Zealand, or you know, but in Africa, it's a very very different thing, you know. So I I think this is a a very important point, and I think Wright has very eloquently got these principles expressed, and I think I think they're correct. When I was reading this, and I read Swordson's kind of account and sort of straw man of Wright, where you know, quoting Swordson, it says. Thus, when, when the European settlers displaced Native Americans, they did not exploit by obtaining an advantage at the expense of Native Americans. They engaged in non-exploitative oppression. I read that, and I was like, wow, this is... What the fuck? Like, I'm pretty sure Native America... Just, like, my knee-jerk kind of reaction was, like, I'm pretty sure there was, like, some kind of exploitation going on. And then you keep on reading, and you get to write response... And it's so damning, like, where he says on the next page, but the dynamics of the antagonism are fundamentally different in two cases. In North America, because the settler population didn't need Native Americans, they could adopt a strategy of genocide as a way of responding to the conflicts generated by the exclusion of indigenous people from the land. There is a morally abhorrent folk expression in U.S. culture that reflects this quality of antagonism. The only good Indian is a dead Indian. That no comparable, and this is where the difference is is important. No comparable expression exists for workers, slaves, or other exploited classes. One might say, the only good slave is a docile slave, or the only good worker is an obedient worker. But it would make no sense to say the only good worker is a dead worker, or the only good slave is a dead slave. Why? Because the prosperity of the slave owning and capitalists depend upon the expenditure of effort of those whom they exploit. Wow. Like, yeah, it's just look at reality, look at history. These are obvious dynamics that have existed. You cannot brush this under the rug. I I think there's a way that people read exploitation theory, and this is maybe true in the rhetoric of Marxists, where look, there's all kinds of bad oppression out there. The real evil is exploitation. Certainly you see this in Marxist feminism where, you know, a lot of this, like a lot of people just sort of deny that, you know, unequal exchange of labor when it's not at the point, like the wage form is exploitation. So a lot of people just don't think of, you know, women who do all the housework as exploited in some way. And so like the way that that tends to pan out is that, yeah, exploitation is the prime evil. And then there's all these other oppressions. But this is actually saying, you know, this isn't, this is like a fairly different point. And I recently or somewhat recently ran into someone on Twitter being like, Eric Olin Wright, you know, he doesn't think jail guards exploit prisoners. Like, that's fucked up, you know? <laughs> like, I can't believe he doesn't think that. Yeah, the owners of the prison exploit the prisoners when the prisoners work for them at near, yeah, sweat yeah. wages. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and, like, the owner, like, and the owner of the prison exploits the prison guard. <laughs> Yeah, that was the other uh, the other thing that I thought was a little bit interesting about the way that this 
alternative definition uh, sort of frames it is that it brings the managers into the class of the exploited as well, whose labor is used in the process of actually generating value. And I don't know that I necessarily agree with that. Wright has a lot to say about managers, but this is such a zoomed out, broad, big picture, like fundamental basis of the economy question that, you know, you really have to zoom in to see those details. And he'll, I, I think that we talked about his overall framework already. We are going to get into management a little later. And there's a chapter, chapter six is very important for that. Well, to chew on this though, like I, I think to my job where I, I schedule for an OPGON, we have like whole teams of people, like we have our normal supervisors and we have whole teams of people that like basically monitor compliance to when I'm supposed to be on break and when I'm supposed to be on call, basically ready to take calls to schedule and, and things like that. So, and then later in this chapter, Wright's talking about how how like managers are part of this surveillance a- apparatus mm-hmm. to keep workers working efficiently to make sure they're not shirking. And that's, that's exactly how it works in my job. Now, are they exploited? Exploited has such a moral connotation for the same reasons that like I had this knee jerk reaction reading Swordson's kind of straw man of right being like, well, what the fuck, right? Like that's not exploitation. Well, no, but there are things worse than exploitation, right? There's relative privileges one exploited person might have over another, but at the end of the day, you could make the, I, I don't even know how much I agree with this, but you could make the case that someone whose job it is is to surveil workers who are getting exploited and make sure that they're not shirking are also exploited because they're not reaping that surplus value or however you want to phrase it in rights framework. They're well, just making sure. They're a cost yeah, to the firm. That, you know. that, that, that's, a, that's sort of an expansive read on a productive labor that many Marxists give. I think the traditional like in, interpretation is that there's sort of like a form of guard labor to ensure that the labor extraction effort happens, like the prison guard right, or something. Right. But, but depending on what type of management it is, they might also be involved in classically productive activities. Not that those distinctions right here matter super much, but just sure. This is a little bit in the weeds, but yeah, yeah. Like it's very interesting this because uh, I read this. There's a there's a kind of a Irish journalist historian guy called Tim Pat Coogan who wrote a book on the Irish famine, and it was interesting because at the time he was like unearthing all these documents about from like the you know the ministries at the time, you know the 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 prime minister and all that in England, and he was able to lay out all the case where they they wanted to actually to depopulate most of Ireland so that they could have turn it more into a ranching kind of a place for like large cattle ranching and you see like where the population was like he makes a case that it was like a genocide he says look you know the, the case was like there was excess population there why don't we just have cattle there and let's just fucking let them all die and it's interesting like because it really fits like his thesis whether it's correct or not i think it's probably pretty good to be honest like it really fits into this it really hit me when i read this i was like oh you know like where there's excess you know people and they don't care about them. They're not bringing them into into the mode of production of capital. Let's just get rid of them. You know, it's it's very insightful. 
Yeah. I mean, well, it's, that's, it's just, a key, that's just it's efficiency. A key, it marks, and it's a key, it, like, it's worth repeating. White, white genocide. White genocide, eh? Who thought we'd get that? <laughs> Hey. Yeah. Well, it's, it's because they're not useful anymore. I, I don't know. Like, listen, we're going to wish an analytical Marxist post left into existence so if we're not careful. So I, I'm I just have... kidding. Uh, what's that guy's name? Uh, what's that guy? Uh, that chiver already exists. So let's move. Let's move it on. OK, who wants to take this one? Esri, how do you feel about it? Yeah, sounds great. Exploitation depends on the appropriation of labor effort a social relation that constantly pits the interest of one group against another that requires their ongoing interactions. It confers upon the exploited group a real form of power with which to challenge the interests of exploiters. Exploitation depends on the appropriation of labor effort. Workers always retain significant levels of real control over their expenditure of effort. The, the, the first parts are dealing just with the yeah, can the we... sociological heart of the proposal and the principle? Right. Yeah. Like so, this is this is this is like Wright's mm -hmm. attempt at defining exploitation. Here, this is him not saying this is what Marx said. This is him saying this is how I think exploitation operates. Yeah, and I, I really do think this is the heart of the Marxian like sociological economic research program. But right there, in in, in a sense, like that, right, gets it down to its core. And it's in, it's in an obviously sociological way. It's not straightforwardly economic theory as we know it. Like, it, it, this is an economic concept, of course. But it's, it's the social situation of this economic concept. It's like the social logic of it. Yeah. So, yeah, the third thing that I read was this. Workers always retain significant levels of real control over their expenditure of effort. The extraction of effort within exploitative relations is always, to a greater or lesser extent, problematic and precarious, requiring active institutional devices for its reproduction. Such devices can become quite costly to exploiters in the form of supervision, surveillance, sanctions, etc. And so we might like quibble with some of the phrasing or whatever, because are they always able to resist? But I think, I think that the point is, is that in general, as a category, given like just the abstract agency, abstracted from maybe the real historical situation that they might find themselves in, that you know they could, they could exert their labor effort. Well, I think this or, is in contrast to non-exploited economic oppressed, right? Like if if their program against you is basically extermination right? Like the only way you can resist is through warfare. Whereas if you're exploited, mm -hmm. you don't have to resort to outright violence. You can unionize, you can try to shirk as much as possible, which is what I do. There's just, you have more options other than just like fighting them to the death, basically. Yeah. Yeah. It's also like you said, Esri, that this is a uh, sociological analysis. And so, you know, unlike say the bare economic facts of the relation we have to like take into account in any given situation the historical investment that the exploiters have put into restricting the power of the exploited so the state you know like all of the surveillance apparatuses they use the management techniques etc 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 instead of just considering it as like a 
situation outside of time where you have like this power to resist versus the power to exploit. But you know, the point is, that I, I mean, which is just to say that like in any given situation, it might seem like the exploited are powerless to resist this stuff, but there's a whole broad array of exploitative structures that have been set up around that to right. make that possible. Yeah. Right. Like, there, that yeah. cost exists. You know, like, and I read a, a, some paper a few years ago, and it was it was trying to estimate what this, you know, the cost of supervision and surveillance and uh, security was in America. And they estimated that being 25% mm-hmm. of GDP. Yeah, yeah uh, I mean, a significant pro- proportion of the economy is, is just basically guard labor. Uh, but I think, I think the, the framing here... Is, is interesting because it, it makes it a little bit more sort of explicit, right? Because the, the form of power that is available to the exploited, even if exercising that power is potentially more negatively consequential than not exercising that power, lies in the fundamental fact that there is no material advantage to the exploiter without the participation coerced or freely given of the exploited. So in order for the, that system to continue, like you said, you have to have all these systems of, of control, of dominance, of propaganda, these kinds of things, in order to convince people not to exercise their power to withdraw that labor. And that's, that is both a significant source of power and an incredible cost on the exploiters as well. Yeah, so the, the, and the ability to impose such costs, I'm going to just continue reading because <clears throat> the conversation that we're having already just is going to go into it. The ability to impose such costs constitutes a form of power among the exploited, thus a concept of exploitation based solely on the notion of rent misses the ways in which exploiters are not merely advantaged because of the disadvantages of the exploited, but are dependent upon the exploited. And I mean, furthermore, what are these costs associated with, you know, managing and doing guard labor and such? Sometimes these are rents. <laughs> and so you can situate, or, or, you know, or you could describe these in terms of rents, right? So you can actually situate exploitation and rent in a way that emerges out of exploitation without just jamming them together. Donald in the chat says that those exploitation systems are kind of like evil cybernetics. You can't have perfect exploitation, but there are nested loops of institutional coercion to get as close as possible. Yeah, that's right. It's a a feedback system that like attenuates out the power of the exploited. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I can tell you what, no matter how much they spend, they can't keep me from playing Switch between calls. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh yeah i used yeah. to when i worked in ericsson's uh they used to have like a uh, disabled toilets and uh, they were very clean no one would ever ever go into them but they were really good for hangovers and no one would ever go in so i used to go up and they were quite large and i would go up and i would lie down when i was very hungover and i would sleep for a few hours <laughs> and no one could ever find out where i was it was really good yeah. nice there you go that's my uh one okay next Class exploitation and perfect competition and information. Kyle, is your your voice is it up to reading or do you want to? Yeah, yeah, I can do I can do one. All right, so 
to test Sorensen's claim that capitalism with perfect competition would be a classless society, we need to examine the three criteria for exploitation. We do this in a capitalist society with perfect information, with only two categories of economic actors, capitalists and workers. For simplicity, we assume capitalists are pure rentiers, i.e. they do not work. Is the material welfare principle and the exclusion principle satisfied in this case? The first test is, would workers be better off and capitalists worse off if property rights were redistributed so that workers would no longer be excluded from capital? Uh, so in other words, you could... So in this system, there is perfect competition, as in there are no transaction costs and there's perfect information, but some people are classed as capitalists who are pure rentiers. They own assets, but do not work. And others have their work as an asset is I believe the implication of what he's saying here. Now, if we were to change the property rights so that workers are, quote unquote, no longer excluded from capital, that is, they are capable of being rentiers to some extent. Right. Yeah. I so it distributes the rentier element equally amongst the population. Right. Okay. Yes. God, I, I hate neoclassical economics so much. This is so nonsense. All right. It's hard to argue that the workers would not be better off if they were also rentiers to some extent. Capitalists have a choice of either consuming their capital or investing it, as well as the choice of whether or not they will work for earnings. Workers only have the latter choice. So capitalists can choose to consume capital or invest it, or they could work, they could use their labor as a asset that would give them an income stream. And workers can only get an income stream from their labor as an asset. Workers could borrow capital, but they would be better off if they didn't have to. And in a world of perfect information, they would not need collateral since there would be no transaction costs, monitoring costs, or no possibility of opportunism. In other words, the payoff schedule for a loan would be perfectly transparent because everything is known perfectly into the future. And so you the, the lender never has to worry about default because what happens is exactly predictable in a world of perfect information. Uh, so if we just define away all of the dynamics of lending, then yes, we end up with this outcome. This shows that if these assets do not generate rents, it is still true that non-owners would be better off if the income producing asset was redistributed. So- Wow, shucks. <laughs> Who could have thought? So, yeah. okay, so I, I think what he's saying is assume that there are things in this world that the capitalists own that are not simply income flows from rents, but are assets. And if the workers were to have the assets, which were 
acquired through rents but are not themselves simply rent income streams the workers would be better off yeah which is you know self-evident but like yeah okay sure sure uh this example is so funny to me because it's like swordson is like and cap and then in this specific example right is kind of like left-wing market anarchism as like a counter to Sorensen's and capitalism, like you know, Sorensen's like, oh yeah, like classes, stateless society, free markets, pretty cool. And Wright's like, yeah, but what if like we just redistributed and everybody was petite bourgeois? That'd be pretty cool too, you know. This is um, this is <laughs> just, just for a little context. This is all pulled from John Romer's general theory of exploitation and class. And so he's the one we can blame. He's the one we can blame for this example, but the the point of this is to establish a Marxist-like theory of exploitation that is an imminent critique of neoclassical economics. And Mm -hmm. because it's in such simple terms, I don't know, like when I was growing up and I tried to think about exploitation in rational choice terms, the obvious thing would be like, well, yeah, would, would everyone be better off if this kind of property didn't exist? Romer in that book uses that framework to argue that, okay, this is a swamp side art. I, I got some swamp side thoughts here, some big bong rips oh, about. F- everyone bust out the bong. Bongs out. <laughs> bongs, <laughs> bongs out. Um, Ru- Rudolf borrows um, the alternative in Eastern Europe where he posits that historical progress is elimination of different forms of exploitation. Romer essentially recreates the same logic and, you know, tries to found a version of historical materialism that way. So, okay, but this, okay, this is the thing I don't understand about this example. How in the fuck do you end up with a society of pure rentiers in a world of perfect competition? How is that, how is that sustained? So I, I, I think in this specific example, everyone is kind of both. Everyone is a little no, exploited and it no, also a little bit no, of an exploiter. No, 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 no. I think, I think uh, Kyle, it's literally just these are the initial conditions we have. X amount of rentiers, Y amount of workers, and we start from there. Okay, the thing, that, the, the thing that annoys me so much about this is... I have to keep remembering that time is meaningless to neoclassical economics because I think to myself, okay, if this is the system you set up, you run this for like any length of time at all and the pure rentier cease to exist. Like it is not possible to sustain that relationship under perfect competition, assuming the existence of time. But neoclassical economics does not assume the existence of time. So this is, it's, I hate the way that they make these normative claims based on perfect competition, but then also run these kinds of preposterous thought experiments that are possible, like they violate the normative claims about perfect competition. And that is possible because you can set initial conditions and examine them in a timeless system. And like, there's one other thing here oh, as well, is, like, where, where we talk about, where they talk about the workers could borrow capital. 
Okay, and if there's perfect information and everything like that, that would imply, I'm not even sure if it would imply there is even an interest rate, right? You know, well, there, no, because you can't have yeah. an interest rate if you're not generating you, you rates. Re you receive, like, if you were a lender, if you were a lender lending out an asset, you would receive exactly, you would achieve exactly nothing. Yes, there's, exactly. there's no gains. Yeah. Right. Right, yeah, because right, this so entire like this entire thought experiment is is so goddamn nonsense. Because in order to set the initial conditions for this thought experiment and and to like make it be an imminent critique of neoliberalism, you have to be so lost in the goddamn sauce, like neoclassical economics. I think I think the reason that this is here is a to argue that from the rules of the capitalist game, there's clearly something like antagonistic class interests that pop up even from neoclassical assumptions. I think the second reason this is here is because, because implicitly we're dealing with Romer's definition of exploitation. Wright disagrees with Romer and he didn't always. Wright adds the labor appropriation principle mm -hmm. in response to Romer, right? And so while yep. Romer can see why the rules of the game generate antagonistic class conflict, he actually can't really, his, his models can't regenerate the zero sum dynamics of capitalism, capitalism essentially. Yeah, because, because in order to introduce the notion, uh, the third notion, the appropriation notion, that uh, Wright has here, you have to introduce the concept of time. Exactly. Because there, there has to be labor as a process in time, which is something that Romer's model cannot admit. In order to apply this principle to this economy, because it's this kind of thing, you don't necessarily need time. In order to have like anything like a realistic economy, you need time. In neoclassical economics, the concept is, is of labor effort is meaningless without reference to time. Ne the neoclassical economics, you can call it economics is and it would mean the same thing. Nice, we're getting. I get to see Mad Kyle. We got, <laughs> we got, we got, we got, Mad, <laughs> we got disease. Mad Kyle disease. No, listen, like I, like. I, I just think that like it's it's fine if some people are going to continue trying to understand Marxism in terms of neoclassical economics. We're not I'm not gonna convince those people out of it. And so I just I want them to get what's important about exploitation. And what's what I what I've eventually found, you know, in doing all the stuff about labor theory of value and I don't know, like a lot of interesting studies that I'm glad I did is just that it's the sociological notion that matters the most, not how you model it economically. So, you know, I, fe I feel a lot less like upset that a neoclassical economics example, while neoclassical economics is too abstract to represent the real world, you know, I don't mind that it's here because there's a lot of people that you can't convince of the labor theory of value. Well, furthermore, like this... I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but this kind of seems like a reductio ad absurdism argument where, like, okay, let's assume the neoliberal bullshit, right? 
like Wright is taking this way more seriously than any of us are because he's trying to make a point, I think. So let's let's just assume the stupid shit is for a second and it's like model, right? And it's mind game. And you still end up with class antagonism, even assuming time isn't real and not in a cool lefty woo way, but in like a weird neoclassical way, right? <laughs> time isn't real. And you have renters and call workers. Yourself, let's just, let's call, just, yourself, let's just... call yourself a Star Trek fan. What would happen to all of the episodes if time wasn't real? They'd be slightly better. So, time zero. So, so you assume this model, and you got renters and workers, rentiers and workers, right? And then, what ends up happening? You still have fucking class antagonism, right? Like even assuming all the dumb shit is true, you still have class antagonism, which is a good thing for us. Right, like even in their dumb models that fucking suck. No, no, no. What we have to do is get mad about how he made the point. The point isn't the point, obviously. The point is that he used the right argument to get to the point. I'm, I'm being a little facetious, of course, but like I mean, that, that's why this argument is here. And Vicky's right. Lost in the sauce. You mean professional sociology and economics? Yeah, that's the sauce. And for the last half century this kind of extreme reductionist economics, displaced Marxist economics and Keynesian economics as like the only scientific form of economics, borrowing a bunch of stuff from high math to essentially bully people into thinking this is the science. And Keynes, was, Keynes was also a neoclassical, let's be honest. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I can't really weigh in on it. I don't know if he's using Walrasian equilibrium or whatever. Like, I don't he's know if it makes sense to talk about like um, he was saving neoclassical economics from itself by bringing in points from uh, fucking the population guy. What's his name? Malthus. Malthus. Yes, Malthus. Yes. Malthus. Malthus. I believe that's how it's pronounced. You know, yeah. we've been doing. But, we've been, We've been doing these reading series now. We've done we've done this one. We've done the Brumaire. We've done the Revolutionary Strategy one. But we started with the mm -hmm. TSSI, and like there was the the whole idea of abstracting from time by setting your inputs into outputs. The price is the same. Yeah, and we're we're back. We're back to the well, same. I I, I just there is a way in which the system. Everything you try to say with neoclassical economics that has any normative content or bearing on the real world always seems to come down to talking out of two sides of your mouth. Because you can say like, oh, in this scenario, the capitalists are pure rentiers. But by rentier, we don't mean they're actually deriving an income stream because that would require that time existed. So instead, they're just rentiers. It's like you say the thing without saying the thing. That is absurd. And there's something that lends itself so much to making the kinds of ridiculous counterintuitive arguments that Sorensen makes here in that practice that I find deeply offensive. And that is, it, it, it's, it's not the method itself 
it's not how you get to the sociological point. It's that the foundation of the sociological point is deeply, deeply two-faced that annoys me so much. Yeah, I don't know what more to say about it than that. Like, it is, it is, it is inherently dishonest. Well, I right. mean, the entire purpose of the project is basically to justify existing power relations. You, you well, have, declare, you have a normative okay, statement that you want to make. You work backwards, figure out them. the starting conditions of the argument, and then roll that forwards to get to your normative statement. I, I don't even know <laughs> if that's like, but it's it's the truth value of the statements that are like the most like egregious. <laughs> like the ideological stuff, I think is obvious, but. Like the fact that this is not obvious. They teach this shit to first year econ students without telling them all of the reasons why it's obvious. Listen, I have taken those economics classes and that's why I'm here basically is because I was like, what the fuck? And you're right. It's not obvious to everybody. It's obvious to us. Okay. But again, the point is here. I was one of those kids who went through those classes and did not think, oh, this is fucked oh, how does this make any sense at all? I was the kid who was like, oh, interesting counterintuitive. Mm, <laughs> this was real science. And that's that's where my theory comes from, I think. Well, no, uh, that's, a, that's a fair sorry, point. Like, you've, you've done graduate work in this field, and so you've had to deal with that kind of intellectual bullying from blustering people who pretend their fake science is math. Like, when it's not, it's like just... Funny, Kyle, I had the exact opposite. I like did a like a course in mathematical economics in my degree. And like after about a week, I was like, what type of horse shit is this? You know, I was so annoyed. You <laughs> I was just an econ. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the only the only actual econ course I took was economics for engineering majors. And like the first day of class, <laughs> the <laughs> The professor stands up and basically just goes, yeah, all of this is entirely bullshit. Just know it for long enough to put it on the test and then get on with your lives because this doesn't matter. It's like... <laughs> I, I, respect, I respect that man. I respect him. <laughs> <laughs> you'd like to help fund the book that Donald and myself are writing about communist economic planning, please head over to the website theclasslesssocietyinmotion.com where you can donate to our fund to help us get this book out in a finite time. Everybody who donates will get a signed copy of the book when it's released. So head on over there today and help us with this really important project. This show is a member of the Emancipation Network, a Marxist podcast and research collective. Make sure to check out our network sister podcasts, General Intellect Unit, Jumpsuit Utopia, Mortal Science and Swampside Chats. And if you'd like to help out the show, please remember to head over to Patreon and throw me a few commie dollar.
On this episode, you heard the theme tune The Order of the Pharaonic Jesters and Night of the Purple Moon by Sun Ra and his orchestra. Thank you for listening and please join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega. Thank you.